0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we are discussing Ichabod Crane, Katrina Van Tassel, and Brahm Bones from the legend of sleepy hollow and joining me for the discussion is producer andrew welcome andrew hello uh this is one of those stories it's kind of like been floating like oh we should do sleepy hollow uh every every fall i kind of think oh we should do sleepy (laughs) hollow uh especially when i don't have time to read a full novel (laughs) before the next recording uh for for this kind of slot and uh we're, we're finally getting around to it uh this this week Um, For anyone who is not familiar, this is a Washington Irving short story titled The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and tells the story of Ichabod Crane pursuing a love interest and then being pursued by the Headless Horseman. And it was first published in 1819. Andrew, do you have any memory of when you first became aware of the story of the Headless Horseman or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? I think it was
1: Wishbone. Oh, that is a good pull. Okay. I'm pretty. I like now. I'm double checking if there was a wishbone.
0: There was a wishbone. Ad- uh,
1: Wait for there, the there, yes. Okay, <laughs> there is one. Yeah. All right. Um. Man, I wish there was a way to watch Wishbone.
0: I know. Oh, my memory is uh from the public library getting the uh, Disney animated adaptation. It's kind of how now I I'm trying to think
1: if the library might have wishbone. I don't know if it's ever been released on DVD. That's that's the Ooh. issue with this one. Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I need to like go make a note to to check for wishbone. Um. But yes, there's the Disney animated one, which I don't think we had we at our house. A, and so, no. yeah, you might have gotten it from from the library or something. Yeah. Which is probably my second exposure to it. Mm hmm. And
0: then I, of course, had to read this as an English major, and I've taught it several times as an English Mm -hmm. professor. So those are my other exposures (laughs) uh, to this.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a common enough one because because Washington Irving is one of the early American writers.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's one of the first people that actually made it a career to be a writer like that. That was his job. Um, A lot of our other writers, it's like, well, they were doing this other thing. Uh, and then writing was something they did on the side I I mean and it takes us a while to to get to stories (laughs) in American Mm -hmm. literary history Um, really it is around Washington Irving. it's like oh look short stories enjoy that class instead of uh, political essays (laughs) and sermons
1: (laughs) Uh, about what it means to be an American
0: yes and which uh, is
1: something uh, that Americans have always been obsessed with since oh, yeah. day one, since before Irving's. day one.
0: I mean, Washington Irving's other most famous story is Rip Van Winkle, which is kind of obsessed about what it means to be American versus European. So,
1: yeah. um, When you said it was 1819, I was like, Oh, that's way earlier than I thought it was going to be.
0: Uh, yeah, it is this early 1800s that we start to see waves of, uh fiction uh, coming from uh, the, you know, those early uh, American writers that are going to be in the anthologies and um i mean washington irving did have a pretty long career too let me go see when his like when i, I think this is this comes from the same collection uh that rip van winkle is going to be in so those are both going to be 1819 but um washington irving was doing i mean i say that like I, I kind of mocked it but he was also an essayist and a biographer and a historian and a diplomat uh as well as being a fiction writer um let's see where's here we go. Ah oh, no, it is the eighteen teens that he's starting to publish uh kind of what we recognize as his stuff there. Um double checking. He may like I'm guessing he did some like newspaper writing before then, but it's kind of those early eighteen teens. Mm-hmm um but yeah i mean like you said it it can feel a little earlier than expected um and even like what we're kind of saying ruffin winkle's one this one is also like talks a lot about like well this particular small town in uh in connecticut settled by the dutch uh you know and and, and, like it gets into like what it means that there's been a couple of generations of dutch settlers living there uh Mm -hmm. so it is still very concerned about american identity uh within this and also it leans into a little bit of uh the stereo. I mean, maybe this is the origin of some of those stereotypes, but like the mysticism around Native Americans is definitely implied in the description of, you know, how the land was used before the European settlers came, the Dutch settlers came, mm-hmm. uh, as part of why this urban legend around a Headless Horseman has taken root within this particular community. And it is an interesting text uh in terms of like the framing, because it gets treated as though this is a story that the author heard from someone who yes had heard it. Uh, so we're already a few episodes was, removed, but also the author is dead. And this, this story was found in their papers. So we're like several oh, like layers
1: have, removed from reality. Did they have the, that layer of framing that it was? It's like it's a, a very, text found in the person's papers.
0: Yeah. Well, that may have been for the whole short story collection. Uh, where oh, okay. uh, Nick Nickerbacher was a pen name of Washington Irving. And I think these stories were found in Diedrich Knickerbocker's papers. Um,
1: Okay, uh, but but this was published in in Irving's life.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. But he frames it as okay. though he
0: found it in his his good um, friend Diedrich Knickerbocker's, uh, you
1: know. Okay, and, uh, Got stuff it. after he died. Uh, it I, it was something that I was going to talk about later, and it makes sense um, when you mentioned you know if, if if he wrote nonfiction stuff or or journalistically because mm-hmm. it has a journalistic tone to it where it's like oh yeah. this is like a long journalist profile where they're saying. I've experienced some stuff or I've heard some stuff. I'm going to put it into a narrative story and, and, and publish it. Right. Like it, it has like, there is an author's voice to it. It is Mm -hmm. not a neutral omniscient narrator. It is a person who is writing something. They say, I, they, you know, make judgments in it. Uh And so it has kind of a journalistic tone.
0: Yeah. And it it leads to a few interesting moments that we can do after we do the summary, uh, where like the, uh, the author makes a conclusion that the reader's not meant supposed to agree with the the reader's really not meant to to come away with some of the final conclusions that the, the author shares is like, well, this is probably (laughs) the final word because the old woman in the town said this, (laughs) which I'm I'm not trying to be dismissive. That's literally what he says at the end (laughs) of of, of the story. Um, So maybe let's run through some of the trivia first Um, noted Washington Irving, one of the first great American authors and the first that is going to uh, really, Master short story writing, um however, <laughs> I just one for this other, as well as writing fiction, he wrote histories and biographies that maybe he forgot to leave the fiction out
1: of a little too much <laughs> so so he continued to write fiction,
0: yes, so he wrote <laughs> one of the first biographies of Christopher Columbus that was like adopted, and this is the version of Christopher Columbus that gets mythologized in American schools, and this. He he seems to have invented almost entirely by himself the idea that Europeans thought the world was flat and Columbus wanted to prove it was round, and he put it in this biography. And it is a story that still floats through elementary schools across America to this day. <laughs> and he also wrote a biography of George Washington and just kind of inserted a story about George Washington cutting down a cherry tree, and then his father saying, "Who cut this down?" And George Washington's saying, like, "I cannot tell a lie. It was me." Um, no evidence of that ever actually happening, but he put it in this biography of George Washington that again was adopted in, you know, 18 teens American schoolhouses and has never left the public consciousness. Um, so, Washington Irving, just be a little more careful when you're writing your histories versus when you're writing your fiction, I guess, is the uh, we can wish that had happened. Um, another thing that he did is he would often take. Existing folklore and kind of weave it into a story. So the Rip Van Winkle story, which I we've talked about doing on this podcast, but I don't think we ever actually have. Like the the idea of the we character, maybe
1: did. I'm not
0: sure. I I don't think we ever actually pulled the trigger and did it. Um, that falls asleep and is you know gone for a couple decades and then wakes up and the world is so changed. Like that was an existing uh character. I just checked. it We have not done that one yet. uh Maybe next like uh Fourth of July. This is all about American identity. We'll see if we get back around <laughs> to that. Um. That was like uh, a European, you know, fable or folklore that he just then applied to that moment in American history and said, like in the 1810s, what would it have been like to be someone who fell asleep, you know, 40 years ago and wake up 30, you know, woke up 30 years ago, or you know, whatever that mm-hmm. window of time around the yeah, American Revolution, you know,
1: before and after the American Revolution and everything. Yeah.
0: Um, And when the story is told in European countries, guess what? They have wild cultural changing things that happen in those countries that they can just frame (laughs) the story around those moments too. And I always say to my students, like, like, where, uh, when else in American history could you like do this kind of story? So I'm falling asleep and waking up and saying, oh, the world is so different. And they're always like, well, the Civil War. I'm like, yeah, when else? And they're like, and eventually, like, I guess the last 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. like, like anytime. Yeah, pretty much anytime. But like, your lifetime is your your experience as a college student today is wildly different than a college students 20 years ago uh, with, in terms of technology uh, in terms of what a day daily routine actually looks like, um, how you're going to consume mm-hmm. information, all those things. It's, it's very, very different.
1: And, and and Joseph oddly applied through another American fixated icon, Captain America. Oh, yep. Yeah. yeah
0: that's uh, a, a good pool there. Thank you for making that connection. And that's an example where in the, in the comic books, it was only 20 years that he was asleep originally. Like he was a character and, from and, the golden age in World War II. And then they pulled him back in the 60s during the, you know, the the Vietnam War. And he's like, oh, these these hippies. How, how could
1: I ever possibly adapt?
0: Uh, yeah. And, and then in the movies, they, they you know, they just expand the timeline. And guess what? He's still like a man out of time, no matter what. <laughs> it's still like, yeah. oh, 20, feels 20 totally years weird. or 70 years. How could he possibly adapt? Uh-huh. And uh, so going back to Washington Irving, the figure of the Headless Horseman, like he didn't invent the idea of the Headless Horseman. Uh, That is a kind of character that you can find texts in the Middle Ages that are talking about it. Uh, Even uh, like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, you know, uh, British kind of folklore is dealing with basically the Headless Horseman. Um, And so he's, Adopting that and making, you know, a particular American spin where the headless horseman, according to the urban legends in Sleepy Hollow, is uh, a Hessian soldier from the Revolutionary War whose head was blown off by a cannon. Uh, whereas in earlier versions, like head smote off with a sword, you know, what you know whatever it may be. <laughs> uh, and it, it works, you know, it's just still, it still works, but it's not something that he just kind of invented, uh, you know, out of, out of nothing. Or it's not uniquely American folklore or anything like that um Adaptations of this particular story go back to uh silent film is the first one, which starred you're never going to guess who was Ichabod Crane, uh, and you're immediately going to go to like silent film stars, and you're going to be a little bit wrong because it was Will Rogers who was Ichabod Crane in a silent film adaptation of this story. <laughs> um, all, right, and, all right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like wait, and when I saw that, I was like, Will Rogers, really? <laughs> then there's the Disney animated version that's in the 40s, mm-hmm. uh, and then as far as film, uh, it's really you, you got to jump ahead to the Tim Burton uh, one with Johnny Depp.
1: Johnny Depp, Christopher as, Walken.
0: Yeah, instead of a uh, a schoolmaster, it's going to be a, a, a it's basically a detective, right? Is I think what his character plays. I've never seen that one. I, I didn't watch it. Yeah. Apparently. There's a direct to DVD film called The Smurfs The Legend of Smurfy Hollow. <laughs> Didn't know about that one. There's also a direct video some... horror film called Sleepy Hollow High.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. I suspect there's probably some some Scooby Doo episode.
0: Oh, there's definitely a Headless horseman in Scooby Doo. It's not listed here, but yeah, I I know there was. Um,
1: there's Wishbone.
0: How have we never talked about Scooby-Doo on this podcast? Okay. Maybe in October. We'll see. Uh, what, what would you do? Uh, the Creeper. Yeah. From the original. Yeah. The, the Creeper's pretty. My go-to. Uh, pretty standard. <laughs> so like, this is everything that a Scooby-Doo episode should have. Uh, but uh, Then you can somebody...
1: get into the movies, but the uh, movies aren't core Scooby-Doo because there's actually something afoot in all
0: Reach out to Nick English and see if you like Scooby-Doo. We can talk about that. Anyway. <laughs> uh <laughs> Um, there was also some TV adaptations that have like always is like the cast. I'm like, wait, what? Who's in that? Uh, so there was a Vincent Price narrated CBS after school special. OK. That had uh, Renee Aubergino Abergenou. uh, from <laughs> Deep Space Nine <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, was, was a it great. I'm like, oh, look at that. Uh, and then there was also... A, uh, a version in 1980, uh television film version, with Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane. Oh, that's pretty good. And Dick Butkus, <laughs> the football player,
1: as Brom Bones. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I mean, f- 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 football player and occasional actor. Yeah
0: um you know what this i've i've got to go edit this wikipedia page because i'm looking at it and it mentions there's like a real ghostbusters episode of the headless motorcyclist i'm like how is sleepy how is scooby-doo not in here <laughs> there's got to be a scooby-doo one yeah. there's a an are you afraid of, uh, of the dark episode called the tale of the midnight ride that borrows basically the same mm-hmm. thing uh the wishbone halloween hound the legend of creepy collars is the wishbone episode. <laughs> 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 uh <laughs> There was, uh, oh, look at that. Uh, in 2004, an ABC family television film with Kay- uh, Kaylee Coco called The Hollow uh, was was a version of this. Uh, you know, it just kind of keeps showing up. Uh, and yeah. then there have been a number of uh, theater theater adaptations and attempts to make Broadway musicals uh, that have never taken off. Mm-hmm. I've seen one in 2009 that premiered at Weaver State. Uh <laughs> Um so yeah uh, this is a, a kind of story that people like just keep adapting and keep uh looking at uh for that, and then it's also had some influences so um there is the town you know it would be great, yeah a muppet sleepy hollow oh you're right okay this so is, this is prime for one of those those muppet this things is uh is Van mm-hmm. Castle there. uh the guns gone zones. Well I was gonna say it's it's uh a human actor is gonna be Brom, right oh okay that, yeah. that's where I was leaning with that uh it's gonna be the rock dwayne the rock Johnson ah oh, that's pretty solid
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, that that works now the downside is. There's not really anybody else, so it's hard yeah. to fill in the I mean, rest we, of the Muppet listed, crew. Uh, so Fozzie is going to be uh... the, the farmer that, that gives him the donkey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, Kermit, Kermit's, you know, uh, he's lodging at Fozzie's place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. We and
0: just Muppet, more Muppet casting special episodes. That's That's, it. that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot uh, of characters in it here. Um, but the so in the in the story, the town is actually called um, Terrytown, uh, I think, is. And mm-hmm. that was a real village in New York. In 1997, they finally just changed their name to Sleepy Hollow to try and help with. There you go. Uh, tourism. I'm sure, uh, uh, the, to, to bring in uh, visitors, right? <laughs> That's the only reason you do that. So now it's officially Sleepy Hollow. Um, and their high school mascot is the horseman.
1: That's pretty, that, that's actually pretty cool.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And there's like a a giant sculpture was put in town uh, in 2006 of a headless horseman, uh, things like that. So yeah, you know, in that region, they've, they've, they've leaned into the mythology of Mm -hmm. Legend of Sleepy Hollow. All right. Well, that's that's all the trivia I had. So before we get into the plot summary, listeners, we want to thank you for listening and especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we're not yet covering as episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary, which the audio version of this that I listened to is an hour in like seven minutes
1: or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was about the length of the one I listened to.
0: Yeah. So like if you're going to sit and read this, set aside about an hour. Uh, and there are not very many plot twists <laughs> along the way. It's pretty straightforward yes. what
1: happens. So I, it's a small... I suspect we'll, we'll, we'll end up talking about it some more because we've talked about it basically every time we've done short stories. Uh-huh. There is a wonderful charm to a short story and being able to consume it as a single bite start mm-hmm. to finish. Yeah. And, and 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 we should we should cover them more often because it really is fantastic. <laughs> yes.
0: So, we are in a small town in New England where Ichabod Crane works as a schoolmaster. He also makes money by teaching singing lessons after the school day is over and uh the way it gets talked about like schoolmasters they can be the bachelors around town because they're educated and they have a career (laughs) and so the ladies are going to be a little bit interested uh there are legends in this town of the ghost of a hessian soldier who had his head taken off by a cannonball during the revolutionary war and ichabod crane is very interested in the supernatural um one of Ichabod's students is the 18 year old katrina van tassel this is one of his voice students um Ichabod is attracted to her, but it is after he sees her father's farms and wealthy belongings that he decides he's in love with her and he begins to (laughs) court her, but he has plenty of competition. And among them is Brom Bones, a strong, loud man who loves pranks and is an excellent horse rider. May be important information later. One night, the Van Tassels have a party. Ichabod stays late with Katrina, but we're not actually told why, but he leaves disappointed. So whatever, I mean, I, I think the implication we're supposed to take is that he proposed marriage. And she said, no, uh, he's riding home on his horse that he's borrowed. Well, not his horse, but a borrowed horse. When he detects another presence nearby, he sees a large figure riding a horse and then is shocked when he sees the rider has no head. Uh, And in fact, his head is like on uh, is He's, he's like holding the head on the on the saddle. Yeah, on the saddle in front of him. Ichabod tries to get his horse to race to the bridge that legend says the ghost cannot pass. But as he looks back, he sees the horseman throw a decapitated head at him. The next day the horse wanders back to its owner but Ichabod is nowhere to be found. A search party is formed that finds the horse tracks and Ichabod's hat and a smashed pumpkin on the ground. Brom Bones is going to marry Katrina. There are rumors that Ichabod has been seen living in another city, but the old women in the town are sure that he was taken by the Headless Horseman. The end. One thing that I think is really interesting about this. (laughs) That's so short. Yeah. When you just
1: tell the story.
0: It's it's pretty short. Washington Irving is not a man of few words. He's not using the Hemingway esque style of writing of I'm only going to give you the tip of the iceberg. He is going to explore every descriptive word. (laughs) It was
1: interesting that you mentioned Hemingway because I thought about it with Hemingway in mind. Like that was one of the, the comparisons that I thought of. I was like, okay, it's not like Hemingway in, you know, describing Right. Because Hemingway is so judicious with his words and he'll paint a picture with very few words, but you have all the details you need. Um, mm-hmm. But. Irving uses a lot of words to describe a lot of things, right? Yeah. Like he is describing a lot of things inside the farmhouse or a lot of things about this horse. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's like especially flowery with his prose. It's just, he's just, a just a giving you a lot of given. details. Yeah. And but it's. But he's giving them all very straightforward. Like, if you look around this room, these are all of the things that you're going to see. And I'm going to give you all of them. It's just if it was Hemingway, there would be three things in the room.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And Irving like, and puts told, 40 things in there. You know, by the end, we know literally every possession that Ichabod Crane had. <laughs> like all of his worldly possessions are are told to us. Uh, like he said, we, we get a description of the horse. We get a description of the saddle. We get a description of the trees that he's he's riding by.
1: Mm-hmm. we're gonna the, know all the farmer that he interacts with one time we get a uh-huh. description of the church we get a description of the music lessons that he teaches <laughs> yeah
0: uh and so he, he gives us lots of details but it's not like um flowery purple prose that is mm-hmm. repeating the same idea in slight variation
1: so uh, there i i had a comparison and i don't think because you haven't read something like this it's not something that that you'll immediately latch onto but it reminded me in many ways of in role playing games the materials that are supplied to the person who's leading the discussion mm-hmm. right and so that might be called an adventure path or a campaign setting or or you know something but so i i'm running a game that you're playing in yeah and uh-huh. i read descriptions of rooms that are much more detailed than what you're going to actually interact with right yes. and this reminded me of that this is giving you all the details about the town and these areas and these settings and these characters for a it's very not... short amount of story.
0: Yeah. It's not necessarily uh, that everyone needs to know these things
1: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm.
0: for, for this. It's, it's uh world building in a lot of ways.
1: Um, yeah. And so, so I could very easily like set a story in this world and we can take out these characters and we can put player characters into the mm-hmm. world and it's like, okay, you want to interact in this environment? Well, you're going to want to go to the school. You're going to want to go to the location where the party is. You're going to want to talk to this farmer. Or, oh, you're interacting with Brom Bones. Well, I can perform his character because I have a clear description of him. He loves pranks. He's big and boisterous. If there's a fight, he wants to be involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have all these characteristics. With, with a, like we said, a very brief amount of story.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think is interesting is in talking about like all the pop culture depictions of this, I think the image of the Headless Horseman holding a jack-o'-lantern has replaced what's actually in this story, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is the idea that the Headless Horseman is holding his own head. And for the reader, like we're supposed to assume that what Ichabod Crane really was, saw was was Brom Bones holding a pumpkin. Yeah, had somehow been decorated to look like a human head. And, and, and that is and what Rob Bones pumpkin. threw at Ichabod. Ichabod panicked and ran away forever, is well, I mm-hmm. think what we're supposed to assume. But the image of a headless horseman holding a flaming jack-o'-lantern is now so ingrained in pop culture, I I still mm-hmm. find myself thinking of that, even though that was not the description that is in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's something that I think uh, you know, eventually antecedents or or uh you know following this precedent we're gonna end up with characters like uh the green goblin in spider-man um or jack-o'-lantern right there's any number of pumpkin themed villains <laughs> that end yeah. up with, with this um and
1: um and i, I, I wonder decide. if that like flaming pumpkin all of that sort of stuff is like coming from the disney version because they, they use a the pumpkin they make that not use like pretty they put that pretty specifically in there Yes. Yeah, and it is the, a, like a flaming pumpkin.
0: The idea of the human head is more grotesque, but the imagery yes. of a headless figure holding a flaming jack-o'-lantern head and with the implicit, I think, assumption that it is looking for a head to replace its own. <laughs> yes. Uh, that comes with that. I think that is which, a more which striking is not, supernatural image.
1: And that is not in this story, but that's like, Kind of the implication in the legend and broader narrative is like, oh, it attacks, you know, people wandering late at night, and it might cut off their head as he seeks to replace his own. Yeah, right. And, that's like the more the sinister side. thing, least, and it's like, I can't that,
0: even say, No, I can't even say where that, that idea in the story at all
1: is is like so
0: ingrained in my head, but it's something in my head. Ugh. Uh, it is something I have. And I carry with me when I think of the legend of sleepy hollow, but it's not here in this original text. Well, the quote unquote original text, because again, mm-hmm. uh, Washington Irving's barring a few things and putting the American spin on it um, with this. Uh, and I, I, I just think it's really fascinating to me how different those two images are. The idea of a headless writer carrying his own human head versus the pumpkin. And I think I like the pumpkin imagery better. the Mm
1: jack-o'-lantern imagery uh well and it it it's a good addition to have the searching for a head and that makes him more dangerous yeah you know the the trying one on for size element Mm -hmm. is like oh that's that is scarier yeah
0: but it, it says something really interesting i think about how um adaptations affect texts and like what our ideas are i mean the most famous version of that or at least readily identifiable would be like our our film versions of Frankenstein that have supplanted what's in the book um you know where where when you say Frankenstein people think of the the moaning ignorant creature <laughs> and the book is mm-hmm. a really moody philosopher
1: He's really trying (laughs) to
0: understand what Frankenstein has, has created. Uh, But uh, once something kind of takes over as a cultural text, instead of the actual source text, it's, it can be really hard to shake that. And uh, I think the Disney animated version does have the flaming jack-o'-lantern. Like you're saying, I'm going to go look up some imagery and that may be, I I looked up,
1: uh, I looked up an image and there was maybe not flaming, but uh, certainly the appearance that could evoke that.
0: Okay. Uh, And maybe that's where it kind of got embedded in in culture and everyone else kind of run with it. Or at least I have mm-hmm. as an individual, i uh, even maybe that's not the cultural norm for it.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, it, it, it it's always interesting to see how like an adaptation evolves or a mythology evolves. Cause I'd say this it fits into the realm of mythology. You know, mm-hmm. especially because it's attached to a holiday. Yeah. So completely like it is one of the he's he's not a Halloween monster in the way that Frankenstein or a mummy is. He's he like he surpasses that somehow. He He's like more mythological than than those kinds of figures. But, but he's think, clearly uh, a Halloween thing, right? Like, yeah. like when you think of, you know, monsters, you don't think of the Headless Horseman. But if you put the Headless Horseman up, people think Halloween.
0: Yes, I think maybe the jack o' lantern is is what has done that. Uh, where it's 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 so distinctly a fall you know thing mm-hmm. to have the gourd. Um, and I just looked up the there's a little Golden Book adaptation of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Disney version, and that is 100% a flaming jack o' lantern <laughs> that is coming towards Ichabod crane and, on the cover yeah. of that one. <laughs> so uh, maybe yeah, it it is. Yeah, I'm gonna blame Disney uh, <laughs> for for the what the the cultural association of of this uh, story is, uh, which. You're going to take guesses of like where our pop cultural version of some other existing text, uh, you know, it became something else. Uh, Disney's not a bad guess ever.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, what do you um, think of the characters that we well, get in this? Like, we, we kind of joke. There's really only three characters <laughs> at all. Yeah. And even then, Katrina is not heavily... Detailed. no and there's there's uh definitely like a little vein of old timey misogyny in the descriptions of women <laughs> in in this story yeah where uh like uh you know women you know can can turn the head of a man and it'll never be the same after that uh but in in this kind of like uh negative tone which if you read R- rip Van Winkle ever um that really leads into some like nineteen fifties sitcom battle axe wife imagery coming out mm. in eighteen nineteen of how rip Van Winkle <laughs> talks about his wife
1: um, um I think the one I listened to did give it kind of a sarcastic tone mm-hmm. um, and so they were able to to like cast it as like, well, I've heard it said that this is this is the way, and it's it's like people are quaint, aren't they yeah, <laughs> like like people- people do say these kinds of things, and it's not the <laughs> coolest, <laughs> yes. um, but you can also read it kind of straight through um.
0: And so having
1: read Rip Van Winkle or uh, yeah that one
0: fairly recently where there is some like even more on the nose kind of uh, misogyny and how any woman character is described in that text I, I'm going to lean towards that uh it, it, it's some careful spin to make it a little more palatable to, to, to do the sarcastic mm-hmm. version you you heard
1: yeah it, like this maybe not the pure reading of the text yeah um but it's hard to tell with mm-hmm. with a narrative voice and and all of that um it I do think that. It's really deftly done to give the right details in the right order for Ichabod Crane to convey without saying that he's kind of greedy and mm-hmm. he's not the coolest guy ever. To say like, look, this is a this is a regular human and yeah. he has self interest, uh, you know, motivating some of this stuff. He's not like a bad guy, like he's he's one of the most like realistically neutral human characters I can think of. Right. Like he's our, he's our protagonist. He's not a hero. He's not, he's he's not especially virtuous, but he's also not especially sinister. Yeah. And, and that's also the case with brown bones is like Mm -hmm. when we get him, it's like, this guy's, you know, got rough edges too. And, but he's not like, he's not a killer. He's not, he's not a murderer. He's going to run a guy out of town, but it's mostly a prank. It's like, "Eh, it's not a great prank. um, and also, and so, he doesn't uh, know, he may not know, it, but he's already won the battle for, uh,
0: yeah, uh, what is her name? Katrina. Uh, Katrina, yes. He's already won for Katrina, or at least the implication we're given is that Ichabod, uh, you know, tried to, to ask her to marry him and failed. Uh, mm-hmm. and it seems like she is more interested in brombones. So he doesn't really need to drive Ichabod out. But he's also I mean, there, there's enough ambiguity that you could tell a version of the story or like an adaptation of the story where uh, Ichabod Crane was killed. And that wouldn't feel like a huge <laughs> like, oh, how how could anyone
1: read the story that way? Right. Um, I know yeah, think- you could you could adapt it that way. I don't think I, I certainly don't think that the implication of it is that Brom would kill him. Mm-hmm. Brom seems like, oh, like this guy's not bad. Yeah, he's like a little too boisterous frat boy, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of a... but you uh, get the sense it's like, yeah, but he's not like he's not hurting people for the sake of hurting them. He's just boisterous he gets up to mischief,
0: and... but uh, not necessarily like going to go break some crime to get him out of the way. Right. Uh, yeah. Like he um, scared him off. He didn't run him down. Yes. Um and fortunately Ichabod had a strong heart
1: <laughs> Um, uh, and, and so I think it's like coming out of it I don't feel like either of them are a hero or mm-hmm. a villain particularly I'm like well Ichabod you know he's not like the greatest guy he's you know stuck up a little bit he is he's pretentious. definitely he more is- interested
0: in Katrina once he finds out she's from a wealthy family like
1: mm-hmm. it's-
0: it's there in the text It's not, that's not just a supposition
1: yeah um, yeah and it but it but it also like it shows you that without just saying like yeah and he's and he's a greedy guy like yeah, he's, he's, he's interested he's for this reason but
0: it's also more like um you know he was kind of interested in her but then he got really interested
1: <laughs> you yeah, know when he saw the farm and yeah it's and not thought like about... a, he
0: had no interest and then now he just had pure mercenary motives i'm gonna court this you know th- this uh you know uh, sweet spirit that I yeah. otherwise would never glance upon. Uh, no, he's like, he, yeah, he was, he was interested he in her a, and then enjoying he's like a flirtatious ah. relationship with her. And then he decided
1: to try and make it more serious. Yeah. And, and the narrative is like explicit, but not simple in how it describes that. It's like, mm-hmm. it talks about how he thinks of being the master of that house and, and having that kind of farmland and what he would do with all of that resource and everything. And it's like, okay, so we can clearly see he's thinking about this in a greedy way, but it doesn't say And Ichabod Crane was greedy and was thinking about material stuff. It like, yeah. it describes how he's thinking about it. And I, and I thought that was like, Oh, that's a way better way of doing it than just saying this character is this way. Well, and the, even the, um, the description and detail is really nice. Yeah. So we have an example where we find out like he's,
0: he's a little bit of a flirt. Like he's, he, he enjoys, yeah um kind of seeing the company of the women around so it says excuse me it says when the school hours were over he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives from others noted for the comforts of the cupboard (laughs) indeed it behooved him to keep on good uh, terms with his pupils the revenue arising from the school was small and would have been scarcely f- sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder. And though Link had the dilating powers of an anaconda, but to help <laughs> out his maintenance, he was, according to the country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. Like, there's a lot of information that's in there. It's a little wordy, um, and it may be mm-hmm. more information is absolutely necessary for us to follow the story that we're being given, but it doesn't feel, like, repetitive or, you know, over- you know you know, just throwing out words to fill, fill up a page rate or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And well, and the way it said is so much better than like, and he eats a lot, despite being, you know, tall, then he, he would, he would eat a lot. It's like, Oh, you could say that in kind of like a brutal way. And this is not brutal, but it's also not mm-hmm. flowery. Yeah. And I really do
0: think like very quickly, you get the feeling that, um, uh, ichabod is kind of like your classic uh you know nerdy kid <laughs> who maybe has a sense mm-hmm. of superiority uh and brahm is kind of like the quarterback who mm-hmm. is popular uh and and he, there's even like a moment early on where it talks about him as a school teacher that he is a stern school teacher which with the custom of the day means he will you know use the rod to discipline children but it makes note that but he would not discipline any of the smaller children who cannot bear it <laughs> you know like so he's looking out for the, the small wiry kids uh and yeah. that maybe feels unduly harsh to the bigger kids who are still gonna be disciplined uh but so, so like he he's stern in the style of the early 1800s uh you know when the story is, is taking place but also a bit merciful and, and yeah so he's, it may, he's not you know. malicious
1: mm-hmm. he's not trying to get back at anybody
0: yeah and and we get a really pretty thorough character sketch um of who ichabod is and who brahm is um and again a short story that you go sit and read in an hour um for this i I, when we were uh prepping this episode i said uh you know um i was trying to get something else set up and i don't think it's gonna happen in time for when this episode has to drop so could we do a short story like maybe legend of sleepy hollow and like pretty quickly you went and listened to it and you were talking to me like i feel like i know more about ichabod crane than i do like a character like Peta from hunger games after three books (laughs) Mm -hmm. because you do get so many descriptions of him and Washington Irving can paint a pretty full picture. And there's a lot that I do like about Hunger Games and Suzanne Collins, but some of the characters that we don't get as much interiority in terms of their motivations and everything is left uh, a bit more implicit. I come away feeling with more, like how much am I projecting my interpretation of this character versus what I've been told of this character uh, by the end of the story. And we're told an awful lot about Ichabod and Brahm in this.
1: And and some of it, I think, is the just the style of telling stories where there's like this is a narrative with a voice, whereas mm-hmm. uh, I'd say most modern fiction is going to be a very neutralized mm-hmm. third person narrator where yeah, they like, never you say, see... you know, I, I don't have a take on this. I'm mm-hmm. just purely describing from a worldview what happened. And I think it'd be very different if you're reading, you know, Brandon Sanderson with this kind of tone where somebody's telling the story it's like oh i'm a participant in the world and i've observed these things or i've collected the story so i can tell you the story and i might insert a little bit of you know my my take on this stuff but it's 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 such a different dynamic but i feel like there's elements of of sleepy hollow where i'm like oh it's actually way more effective to have this dynamic
0: and it, it feels like you can definitely understand how, you know, within a half century, like the voice of a Mark Twain is still telling these kind of like uh, colloquial uh, trying to capture the, the feeling of the spoken language, you know, kind of kind of storytelling mm-hmm. um, versus, like you said, kind of the neutral narrator that's uh, telling you th- events that are occurring in a world. Right. Uh, it's just. So different uh, the 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 style of storytelling here in the early 1800s mm-hmm. or into the mid 1800s uh, versus and, what we see in the 2020s.
1: And he has a story that he's going to tell. He's giving you all the details to establish like who are these characters, so that you can kind of appreciate how they're behaving in mm-hmm. the story. And but he spent so much more time on these descriptions than the actual story itself. And um, and I'm I'm trying to think through like the evolution of that because there's certainly Elements of this that are kind of akin to Charles Dickens style where mm-hmm. Dickens would just insert, you know, maybe two vignettes about a character so you can understand that character as they're about to actually participate in the the main story. And it's different because Dickens is getting paid by the word and and all of that sort of stuff. But if you're reading A Christmas Carol, you know, you get inserted insert. world building. We, we uh, talked about, about this, this character one time
0: he was not paid by the word that is a, uh, a myth, <laughs> but okay. he was paid by the, uh, you know, the, the episodic chapters that he's putting out there. So. <laughs>
1: so not quite the
0: word. Yes. Uh, who was it? Hannah. We talked about it with Hannah, I think.
1: <laughs> right. Um, you know, but, but you know, you would have these, these inserts to flesh out a character or a setting, right? Mm. It's like, oh, well, here's a little bit of the history. And, and I mean, it's not exactly Victor Hugo, <laughs> where you're really (laughs) digging into, you know, historical context or, 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 um, Alexander Dumas, uh, Mm -hmm. where you have these, you know, political explanations of not, not even characters. It's like, here's what's going on with Napoleon. So you can understand the politics of why these characters are making these decisions, but it's kind of similar to, you can see how those are related. You know, when you have these descriptions of Ichabod and how he interacts with, People in town and his well, general behaviors talks about,
0: um, you know, the, the generations of Dutch settlers who carried this kind of superstition with them. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you layer that superstition on top of the romanticization that has occurred about native Americans that had this land before these Dutch settlers came in. This like they, he kind of like runs through <laughs> a lot of uh, flavor for why these people talk about the headless horseman so much.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and then it, that seems related to like, Herman Melville and Moby Dick where it's like, okay, chapter of story, chapter of whaling, chapter of story, chapter of whaling. And, and I don't know when like it shifts gears and starts getting more neutralized and starts getting more like just the story that we see from this character's perspective, because, because if you're, if you're reading Harry Potter and it's in this tone, then you're going to get these descriptions about how Hermione behaves. And it's like, actually, we don't have any of that sort of stuff. And, I kind of wish I understood.
0: But, but even you then know, we'd be a little bit removed. What, what's her
1: routine for getting ready for the day?
0: Yeah, but we'd be so far removed also from the story. That'd be like, okay, how much of this am I supposed to be taking with a grain of salt? Because this is like a story about a boy that my uncle heard. And the person yeah. who's saying my uncle is not the actual narrator. That is uh, the papers that the narrator found. <laughs> and the narrator's casting like a little grain of salt over everything too. Uh, it's just like, okay, how much of this are we supposed to take at face value? To the, you know, it does this really interesting move at the end of the story. Where um, it says, it is true, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, and had been admitted to the bar. So it was like a little like, here's here's what might have happened <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. to, to Ichabod Crane. But then it also gives us at the end, the old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was speared away by supernatural means. And it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood around the winter evening fire. Um, and so we're given like two different conclusions about the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think we, as readers, we're supposed to surmise the first version that Ichabod got scared, ran away. There was no headless horseman. It was Brahm pulling a prank and using a pumpkin as a head to scare Ichabod Crane. Uh, that's that's what really happened. But it does. The final note we're given is take the story at face value. if there was a headless horseman. Yeah, you
1: can you can bag. tell it as a spooky story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's basically giving you permission to retell it the way you want to.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and leave just enough uh, ambiguity for the reader that it doesn't feel like the author is telling you what to think.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's almost, oh, this had not struck me until just now. And I know this is essentially what it is, is documentation of an urban legend. But I I took, you know, in college, I took a a folklore class that was heavy on urban legends. And we read a whole book about urban legends. I was like, oh, this has like all of that tone where there's, you know, kind of an ambiguous ending and take it this way or take it that way. And maybe it's really spooky or maybe everything turned out okay. You can you know, decide what you want to decide on it. But that ambiguity is, is very much in line with, you know, all those dumb urban legends that, that, yeah, you know, when you're, when wife, you're 13, the, it, it, it the, spooks you out, you know, the, the, guy with the, the hook hand. yeah, <laughs> I was going to say the, the guy with the hook hand or, or the, um, like the, the passenger in the back seat or, you know, disappearing hitchhikers and all those kinds of things. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. The serial killer in the house, you know, any of those kinds of mm-hmm. things.
1: Yeah. And, and so it's like, oh, it's It's urban legend from yes, 200 years ago, yeah, and it's it's really interesting because
0: it gets presented to the reader kind of as like I heard the story,
1: like, like which is exactly like an urban legend, friend of a friend, yeah,
0: it, it is urban legend, uh and uh I think Washington Irving was a pretty savvy writer, uh and he knew like uh you know, urban legends were around, <laughs> you know, or folklore was around, uh and he kind of yeah. knew the rhythm of of telling the story well and he's going to give it uh to us that way uh within this. And it it turns out to be a pretty satisfying text that does create a figure that as you said like still is present in our halloween uh you know iconography. Um maybe not as iconic as some some other halloween fixtures, but if some, you go by a house and someone's got, you know, this projected in a window or something, you know exactly what it is. Um mm. it has that level of um you know cultural penetration. And the imagery of the flaming pumpkin head is so, so wonderful for fall. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it really does uh, just feel right uh, for, for that, that time of the year when the weather's pretty cold and people are putting out pumpkins as decorations to have this villain that is adopting that is uh, such a great turn. And even if that's not in the original story, the idea of the pumpkin, being thrown is in the original story <laughs> It just then gets elevated uh in in subsequent retellings or reimaginations of this kind of story so uh washington Irving, you know did a really good job in the short story and i think um i one of my plans this year for for around thanksgiving instead of doing like the, the stories we're thankful for kind of special episode i want to do an episode where we talk about um the stories that we build traditions around uh like, like mm-hmm. consuming certain stories at certain times of the year this this is such a great fall story that if if you can find like an audio version be it a free um podcast version or uh i know on on audible if you have an audible account there are free versions of this out there um that you can just download on audible as well uh it's worth giving it a listen to but i think pretty regularly in the fall <laughs> it's it mm-hmm. can help set set the tone uh for for that time oh period. yeah
1: it was it was excellent. Right, like, like it was excellent listening. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we're getting close to wrapping up. I just really do want to ask you, like, when do you think that, like, how does the evolution occur that goes from this sort of, you know, narrative person telling a story kind of style to that neutralized third person objective description? I mean, how, yeah. how like how does that happen? So I mentioned like like Moby Dick, Herman Melville. That's that's 1850s, and yeah. I mean, clearly by the time you're getting to like the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, it doesn't feel like there's an an author, right? That feels. Yeah. Here's it's what happened: more
0: relaying the events, and I was going to say it. It um, so we get what's called uh um regionalism in a post Civil War American. Uh, where, like, the the voice of the story matters in that it's supposed to be capturing what it really would feel like to be in that town. But it is often, like, the, uh, you know, the Mark Twain, like, leaning into capturing <laughs> the mm-hmm. uh, the voice it, that still feels a bit performative. And then coming out of that regionalist era, I think we start to get the idea of, like, capturing the feeling of these different parts of the country, but not quite so much with that narrator Present, uh, you know, as as the Mark Twain. So I think it's that transition after Mark Twain, heading in towards the modernists of the early twentieth century. So,
1: so pretty much the turn of the turn of the century.
0: Yeah, yeah, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, um, is 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 it was
1: where that. some sort of transition takes place. Because because Mark Twain definitely still has some of that in, in some of his stories. Oh yeah. yeah, like there there is a narrator, not necessarily all of them. I mm-hmm. think he straddles it maybe a little bit more than
0: yeah, it depends on what a lot of but like the voice of
1: or, or long story.
0: Important. Uh, um, and like there's uh the idea that. uh He's telling a, a tale is present in a lot of his short stories. And I'm going to tell you something I heard about. Uh But I, it's not like relating it as it's occurring to to the audience. But by the time you get to the modernists, that's pretty standard. That that's what you're getting. But even in the in those some of those late 1800s. Uh, Short stories like um, Desiree's Baby uh, or uh, Yellow Wallpaper. It is like this is uh, a tale that you're consuming as though you were you were seeing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, I guess it's probably ooh okay here we go. It's the realist of the late 1800s. Probably is where we're going to reject some of the performative aspects of storytelling. uh, Right, it's that
1: performance is a is a good word for it.
0: Yeah, it, and you get into like Henry James or, uh, um, oh, there's a whole batch there in the late 1800s where it's like slice of life stories that are still kind of doing mm-hmm. some of the same work as the regionalists of like trying to show you what it's like to live this life, uh, you know, in the, in this particular city at this economic class, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, but it feels right. a little less like you're um, being told a story as though uh, and more like you're looking through a window into a story.
1: Well, and um, and I like definitely by the time you're getting like The Great Gatsby or mm. oh yeah yeah some... those are modernists.
0: yeah but uh yeah anyway, that's clearly
1: like here's the here's Fitzgerald. the story <laughs> like it's pretty neutral like I have a style but it's just my style as a writer it's not yeah. that I'm creating a narrator mm-hmm. um whereas a hundred here a hundred years prior I am writing a narrator telling a story.
0: Yeah, and then when we get to right, postmodernism, what we you can find a RV. real mishmash of depending on who you're reading. Uh, are, is there gonna be a framing story that's like t- setting you up mm-hmm. to tell you I'm about to tell you a story, but then you disappear into the story and you forget that there was ever a frame? You know that that can start to happen with postmodernism and, and things like that. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing this... some precedents for a lot of these, but that's kind of the, the general flow. I think I could I, I'd identify. I,
1: I imagine there is some sort of differentiation. I mean, clearly in that in that hundred year window of like Washington Irving to F Scott Fitzgerald somewhere mm-hmm. in there is a massive transition in how many people are literate so how many people are reading this for themselves versus it it is being told to them so like writing for a reader's voice versus a speaker's voice and yeah. and and how many people are accustomed to having read stories versus having heard stories Washington mm-hmm. Irving probably grew up having stories told to him and so when he's creating story he's going to do it with that tone whereas F Scott Fitzgerald probably read stories to himself in a a different room
0: and the idea of like what mass entertainment is changes so much where like Mm storytellers still uh you know gathering around the fire and sharing stories that's still an art form that's pretty common in the early 1800s but by the early 1920s like film is our like we go watch performances (laughs) on the silver screen is where we uh we're gonna go find our, our mass entertainment um in a lot of ways um you know, it's just an ebb and flow of, you know, where technology is at is going to be a huge part of this. And and therefore, because of where technology is at, how are stories actually being consumed?
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: oh, Good question there at the end. I'm glad I had an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever someone was like, I've just got one more question, and it's like something like that, I'm like, oh, I hope I got something to say. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, I do recommend you go find a copy of Legend of Sleepy Hollow because it's so old. You can find a number of <laughs> versions of this, uh, many uh, just floating there in public domain. They, you, you can go listen to, um, you know, podcast adaptations, um, or audiobook adaptations, or go read the whole text on like Project Gutenberg. It's all right there. But that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Toffey who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So,
1: we're going now. Okay. I just thought of a way to rephrase something real quick.